morning's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is God's word. You may be seated. I invite you to keep your Bibles out. Uh, we're going to be looking both Old Testament and New Testament scripture this morning. would also invite you to, to pull out that sheet you find inside of the, uh, the bulletin or the, 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 uh, uh, the, what do we call it, announcement sheet. And inside of it, you find not only the, uh, the order of worship, but you also find uh, an outline that you can use as we go through this study of the life of Jesus this morning. At the bottom of that outline, you're also going to find a, a couple of questions that are going to be posed at our small groups tonight. And if you are a visitor and you would like to, uh, to be a part or investigate something about our small groups, at the end of our assembly, as, uh, as we're being dismissed, there's a desk out in the middle of our foyer that says Ministry Central on it. The young man that, um, that uh, led our communion devotional this morning, Derek Daniels, is going to be manning that desk, and he will help you find a small group that you can be a part of. But for those who are already a part of a small group and planning on being there tonight, participating, those questions at the bottom are the questions we want you to be thinking about as you get ready for the discussion and, and uh, uh, fellowship time tonight in our small groups. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into this study. Father, we, we confess that there are times when it seems like we're riding an, an avalanche or we're in the middle of a stampede when it comes to the busyness of our life. And we are grateful for those times that happen not just on the first day of the week, but throughout the, the entire work week where you stop us in mid-avalanche or you stop us in mid-stampede to make us slow down, to stop, and to notice that you're there with us and that you're in charge and that you are a blesser and a father and a, a lover of our souls. And we're grateful for these moments, Father, because it is so easy for us to get distracted with things that are garden variety, vanilla-flavored, mundane kinds of things and to forget the deeper, more profound and significant truths that not only make up our existence, but make up all of existence and all of time and all of history. We are grateful, Father, that you give us your word to help us to understand and to, and to reflect and to meditate, to contemplate the greatness of your presence in life, not just our life, but in everyone's life. And so to this end, Father, we, we pray before our study that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear in order to turn toward you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm excited that we're going to begin a new series this morning. It's going to begin today. It's going to go up until about uh, Christmas Eve or so. And what we're going to do is we're going to study. We're going to press our mind into God's Word in such a way that we come to know the greatest person who ever lived uh, the, the, the greatest, most important person who ever lived, we know him better and better. 
And I want to begin with a story. You've heard the story. It's kind of an old story. It's been around for a while. But there was a a Sunday school teacher of kindergarten kids who came to class one Sunday morning. And in the middle of her class, she asked the kiddos a lesson that pertained to to what she was teaching. And the question was, what do you call that animal that lives in a tree, has a bushy tail, and eats acorns? And nobody said anything. And she's thinking to herself, well, these are kindergartners. I mean, they've, they've seen this before. They know what this is. What, what is the deal? So she asked again, uh, kiddos, what do you call that animal that lives in a tree, has a bushy tail, and eats acorns? And finally, this one little girl kind of uh, hesitatingly raised her hand. Teacher called her and said, Sally, what do you think the answer is? And she goes, I think the answer is a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> the point of that story has always been to me, that we can say the word Jesus as sort of an answer and not even think about the question behind it. There, is, um, there are times in Scripture, especially in those Gospels, where we're made to think about the identity of the Christ. There, there is in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is up there in Caesarea Philippi with all of his disciples, and they are, they are maybe sitting around having a rest, maybe it's midday or something like that. And he asks the disciples a question. He says, who are the people that you kind of run into on a day-to-day basis? Who do they say that I am? And they go, well, you know, we hear all kinds of things. Some people think that you're John the Baptist sort of raised from the dead, which is kind of a funny answer since Jesus and John the Baptist were contemporaries of each other. Some say one of the prophets. Others say that you're Elijah. Others say that you're Jeremiah. And Jesus asks the question, but, you know, the really important thing is not only do I want to know what other people are saying, but I want to know what you think. Who do you say that I am? Significant moment. Who do you, my disciples, say that I am? One of the first miracles that Jesus performs found in Mark chapter 4. He is tired from teaching. They decide to go to the other side of the lake. They get in a boat, he and his disciples. They cut across the Sea of Galilee. Next thing you know, this thing that happens all the time when you go out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee is because of the way the tunnel effect is with the wind, with the uh, the Golan Heights and uh, inversion and these kinds of things. You can go from calm waters to a raging storm in just a matter of minutes out there on the Sea of Galilee. And that's what happens. And they find themselves out there. The boat is being filled with waters. The waves are crashing over. And these guys, these disciples, are just scared out of their minds. They look back to see where Jesus is. And what do they see? Jesus is in the back of the boat. He's got a pillow under his head. And he is so sound asleep that this storm doesn't even wake him up. I mean, they go, look at this. Jesus is back there sawing logs while we're afraid. And so they wake him up, they shake him up, and Jesus, you know, he gets up and rubs his eyes, and they go, don't you even care that we perish? And he just asks a very simple question, where's your faith? And he gets up, and he walks over to the front of the boat, raging storm that's taking place, and he stands on the front of that boat, and he looks out, and he says to all of nature, peace, be still. And that that storm just, whoomp, just drops, and the sea becomes like glass. And those disciples, now they had seen a lot of stuff that Jesus had done, but they had never seen anything like that. And all of a sudden they're confronted with this this Christ, and they ask the question, who is this? Who is this who can even calm the seas? 
Many of you have read the book by Timothy Keller entitled The Reason for God. I think it's one of the best books written in our generation. In fact, probably in the last 10 years or so that addresses a lot of the questions of skeptics about the Christian faith, about God, about uh, questions of, of the suffering, uh, the presence of suffering and the, the inspiration of the Bible and things like that. And towards the end of this book, uh, Keller tells this story about an encounter he heard about between a minister and a guy that was kind of struggling to come to faith. And in that conversation, you know, th- this fellow is saying to the minister, he says, he says, I want to come to faith. There's so many beautiful things about Christianity. I, ju- I just want to come to faith. But every time I'm about to come to faith and make the decision, there's this other argument that makes me kind of doubt whether or not it's all true. What I need is a watertight argument and the minister thought for a moment he said maybe that's not how God works maybe that's not how God works at all maybe what it is that God gives us instead of a watertight argument is he gives us a watertight person Jesus is the only complete human being who ever lived when you look at the life of Jesus There are no holes. His life, in fact, becomes the argument. And so in that scripture that that Chris read for us just a, a minute ago, it's the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke writes these words. He says in verse 1, those things that have been fulfilled among us. What in the world are those things that he's writing to Theophilus about and doing all of that investigation to make sure that the certainty of those things are being transmitted properly? Well, those things that have been fulfilled, that is about the coming of a person who changed all of history. The history of the world. He changed the history of every person who has ever lived. He has changed the history of every being who will ever live. And yet... We find ourselves in 2017 in this culture that I think is aptly described by Walker Percy in his book, Love in Ruins. He wrote that book about 50 years ago, but he describes the culture as Christ-forgetting and Christ-haunted. You've been to a graveside service before? One of the things you do is you're waiting for it to begin, and sometimes even after it ends, you do the same thing as you're waiting to, to meet the grieving family. One of the things you do is you look at the tombstones and you look at the, the, the headstones, the gravestones. And what you find is the name of the person. And so you know who that is. And you even know the date they were born, and a lot of times the date that they died, if it's, if it's a, a more recent uh, uh, piece of masonry. But you don't know anything, really, about the person who lies there. I can't help but think that sometimes we treat Jesus the same way. That he's not really alive, that he's not really here, but we know his name, and we know round about the time that he lived. Now, how this works in our society, in our cultures like this, people will say things like, I don't really like the church that much. But I I really, really like the Christ. I really like Jesus. And that doesn't mean that they like Jesus as Lord. And it doesn't mean that they even like Jesus as King or even Jesus as Creator. What it really means is that I kind of like what Jesus says about loving one another or do unto others as you would have them do unto you or to love your enemies. And every time I read something like that or I hear somebody say something like that, I always ask myself sort of internally, 
have you really read what it is that Jesus says about himself and about how to live? Have you really considered even what love your enemies is all about? And I will agree 100% that what Jesus taught in terms of a moral life is absolutely beautiful. But I will also say that it's horrific at the same time. I mean, think about the beauty of what it is that Jesus teaches us to live, to live like he lived. Uh, beautiful in the sense of that, that moral excellence. That's what we've been looking at over the last eight weeks or so as we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 32. This is what a disciple in part looks like, some very practical things. If you're a disciple of Jesus, when you speak or when you consider the truth, you put truth and honesty and speaking all of that in love. That, that is a high premium for you. And when it comes to anger, you're, you struggle with how to be angry in the right way and not in a way that gives Satan sort of a toehold into your life. There's this emotional maturity that as a disciple of Jesus, when people see you, they, they just notice that there's something different about you emotionally. You don't seem bitter. There's not any rage inside of you or anger. You don't seem to brawl with people. You don't slander people. In fact, when they consider the totality of your life, you know what they see a lack of? They see a lack of malice. But what they do see is a person who is kind. Not just somebody who does kindness. Paul says, be kind. Be compassionate. What they see when they look at our life in terms of the moral teachings and the moral excellence is a person who knows how to forgive because they've evaluated all that they have been forgiven. And so they're able to forgive other people. But you know what's kind of horrific about it is that nobody can do it perfectly. I mean, you sit down in Galatians 5 with the fruit of the Spirit and you go down and you say, this, 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 and this. I sort of do halfway decently. But when I look at these other things, oh man, oh man, oh man, will I ever be gentle? And the big one is, man, where in the world can I get me a double dose of patience? It's horrific in the sense that no one can do it perfectly. And that's why, listen carefully, that's why you cannot separate the teachings of Jesus from the life of Jesus. His teachings cannot save you it is his life that saves you you are saved because of his life that died that was crucified on that cross for you his teachings are not going to save you, you can't do them perfectly they're beautiful and when you become a disciple of jesus and you begin to live a life of obedience and you're being transformed by his spirit by his word by his presence into looking and emulating and becoming like christ that stuff begins to develop in your life but you can't do it perfectly you're saved by his life and that's why in a manner of speaking people not only need the teachings but also the life of the one who perfectly embodied those teachings I would say that that's true even of us. That we need to be mindful of this as a, a church family that comes together and loves each other. You know, it's, it's like a marriage. People, many people, unfortunately, are technically married, but they're not intimately married. They're technically married, but they're not intimately married. They may not have started out that way, started out with all that romance, all that honeymoon, enjoying each other, 
all that idealistic way of thinking about another human being, you know, especially those beginning uh, uh, moments of, of a relationship and a marriage, excited about getting married in those beginning years, but over the years the excitement begins to kind of drip out of the relationship. In fact, one of the ways that you hear a, a relationship, a marital relationship described a lot of times when it's, when, when it's, when it's beginning to struggle a little bit is that they talk about, you know, we're, we're more like roommates than two who are trying to become one flesh. They live technically as husband and wife, but not intimately so. You know, they think about each other periodically through the day, but they find things like television, the gym, video games, or Pinterest more appealing. They are technically married, but not intimately so. And I think a lot of times that describes us. It describes us. That we can, we can talk about being Christian technically. That we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that He died on the cross. We do believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. We are baptized. We do go to church. Technically, we do the stuff, but we are not intimately so. We may think about the Christ once or twice through the day usually at the end of a prayer. We go to worship. Sometimes it's duty, sometimes it's tradition, sometimes it's both. But it's been a long time since it was an event that stirred the soul. The prayers, the cliches, going through the motions week in and week out. Same old, same old. The life of a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth is a life of joyful relationship with God. I'm going to. <laughs> the life of a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth is a life of joyful relationship with God. Let me give you a couple of examples, both from the Psalm. Psalm 34, verse 8, 35, verse 9. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Now, what, what the psalmist is basically saying there is, he says to a bunch of Jewish people, think about the Seder. Think about a special feast. Think about a marriage feast that goes on, on and on. Think about the food that you're going to eat. If he was writing today, he would say, think about going to your favorite restaurant. And you eat, you order something off the menu for the very first time, and what it is that they put before you and you taste it, it is absolute. it tastes great. And somehow that flavor penetrates past all of your senses in order to kind of get into that center of you. That taste is so great that it even creates joy. And what is it that you have to do when you taste great food? What's the first thing you have to do? You post it on Facebook. <laughs> Guess where I am? I'm at so-and-so restaurant having the best meal of my life. Everybody should try it. This dish is the grated hashtag no calories, gluten-free. <laughs> you have to tell somebody about it. And then you become an advocate for that restaurant. Somebody comes into town and go, you know what? Where's a good place to eat? Do you know a place to eat? You got tourists that are coming in town and they stop you on the street. Says, hey, you're native, right? Say, yeah, I've been around for a few years. What do you, can I help you with something? So, yeah, where's your favorite restaurant? Where's the, what is it that we get asked all the time in San Antonio? What's the best Mexican food restaurant? And everybody be, has an advocate for their best restaurant. You know what David is saying in the psalm? 
He's saying, you know, when you taste God the Father, God the Creator, He's delicious. There's something about tasting the goodness of God that penetrates past your senses and it just creates something in you that you just have to tell. You're an advocate. You're an advocate for the, for the blue plate special of grace every day of your life. And then in Psalm 35 and, and verse 9, he says, My soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight, delight in His salvation. You know, one of the things that happens when you have a, a, a grandchild is you, you find a source of delight that has never been before in your life. And, and I'm like every other granddad who ever lived. I, you know, I have a granddaughter that I dote on. I mean, I think about her all the time. In fact, my wife accused me this last week of being obsessed. And I said, I don't know why you say that. I, I just can't think, stop thinking about her. I think about her all the time. I don't know why you say I'm obsessed. But that's what you do when you delight. And, and, and the psalmist is saying, when it comes to God, you can delight in God in the way that you delight in a granddaughter or a grandson. And you're always going to have a picture. You're always going to have something ready to show when somebody says, hey, are you a granddad? I mean, I have a grandkid. You always got something ready. And that's what it means to delight. And so the great delight of our faith is not just the product of truths alone, but in a relationship with the one who embodies all those truths. And so two things, and then we're going to be done. The first is God and humans are to have a relationship. The Bible opens with God and humans together in the Garden of Eden. The first big tragedy in the Bible is, is when that relationship on the part of the, the, the humans and the part of God is, is, is ruptured and, and rendered, you know, it's, it's, it's separated because of sin. The first big tragedy in the Bible is our falling out of relationship with God because of sin. And the rest of the Bible reveals a God who in love is trying to restore us to His presence. When we are saved, we are not just forgiven our sins, but we are saved unto God who becomes our Father. In 1 John chapter 3, John is, is this, this old guy, probably in his 90s, doesn't have much time left. He knows there are people struggling in that whole area around Ephesus. And out of all of the things that he could write to them, he says these kinds of things. He says in chapter 3 verse 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, ch say it, children of God. And that is what we are. Eternally. You're in a long-term relationship with God. In fact, turn to the person to your right and to your left and just say to them, I'm in a long-term relationship with God the Father. Take a minute and do that. And then going all the way to the beginning of John's Gospel in verse 12, he says, To all who did receive Him, and to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. There it is again. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. When it was announced that a Savior, a, a Messiah, was coming into the world, what was His name supposed to be? Jesus, yes, which means God saves. But what's the other name? Emmanuel, which means God 
with us. And when Jesus finally came into the world, he did not live in isolation. He lived in a family. He lived in a village. He had brothers and sisters. He had an extended family. He had acquaintances. He had customers as a carpenter. He lived in the middle of people. And when he began his ministry, he did not operate in isolation. He gathered people around him, both male and female. And his personality was such that he attracted people to him by multitudes. In fact, there were times when his family worried about his health because of the number of numbers of people that were coming to him on a regular basis. He was not repugnant. He was not a get-off-my-lawn kind of guy. But rather, in Matthew chapter 11, at the end of that chapter, what does he say? Come unto me. God wanting to have relationship with you. In fact, he would not allow people to relate to God in an impersonal way. He says to those religious leaders in John 5, you're studying those scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He would later say to those same religious leaders that they were guilty of what Isaiah talked about back in Isaiah chapter 29. He says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The vision at the end of Revelation, the end of the Bible, God and all his people together again. God and humans are to have a relationship. And number two, knowing God and living in His presence is full of blessings. When, when I'm gone and there's no physical trace of me on planet Earth, there is a verse that I hope when every time they read it, a person reads it, it reminds them, those that know me, of me. Psalm 73, verse 28. The nearness of God, that's my good. The nearness of God, the Creator, God the Father, God the Shepherd, God the, the Savior, that is my good. We're at the end of the lesson. Let me, let me just give you one way in which knowing God and living in His presence is full of blessings. Because of your relationship with God, the universe becomes a perfectly safe place for you to be no matter what happens. That doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that there's not some pain from time to time. But you can be at peace regardless of whatever you encounter. There are no grounds for fear. Why? Psalm 23 tells us, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are what? with me. Romans 8 says that nothing separates us from the love of God. What, what separates us, he says in verse 34, from this love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or anything else that scares you will ever separate you because that relationship, that relationship, the love of God cannot be broken. I'm going to give you a challenge. We're, we're done. But I do want to give you a challenge. 
for the, the next couple of months through the fall, starting today, going through the end of the year, what I'd like for you to do is, I, I don't want you to completely stop watching television, but cut it in half. That's the challenge. Cut your television wa- uh, watching in half. You can DVR stuff, watch it another time, watch 30 minutes of a show, watch the next 30, you know, the following 30 minutes the next day, whatever, but cut it in half, and that other half, the half that you're cutting out of television, read the Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But don't read them just to get all of the, the dates and the, the names and the places. What I'm going to ask you to do is, for the next four months, as we go through the study of the life of Jesus, I want you to spend half your TV time in the evening or in the morning or whenever reading the Gospels as if they're a love letter. I mean, think about a love letter. I, you, you know, uh, one thing that love letters have in common is that they don't sound like insurance policies. They, they're, they're, they're not usually very technical. Usually, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of gooey. Uh, but there's something that you do when you receive that love letter, even if you've been married for a long time, is that you just, how many times do you read a love letter? I mean, you just read it over and over and over and over and over again. And every time you read that love letter, there's something that you think about. It's the person that has written that letter to you. And you ponder it and you contemplate it and you think about it and you think about the relationship and you think about all the good things that happened. And that's what I want you to do with the Gospels. I want you to read the Gospels as if God is writing you a love letter. Not that it is a love letter, but read it like a love letter so that when you read about the Christ, you're reading about the embodiment of love that God has sent to the world in the form of Jesus. And what it means... For him to have sent his son to this planet to die for you over your guilt and your sins and your crimes in order through love, he might have a relationship with you that goes on and on and on. You're in a long-term relationship with God if you're a Christian. And that's the challenge as we go through this study. And each week we're going to build an our understanding of what it means to be in relationship with Christ. And how that... That is a transformational experience. You may never have started that relationship with the Christ. In fact, you may be here this morning going, you know, you know, I've been thinking about this and thinking about this and thinking about this, and maybe there are some arguments I haven't made quite sense of or have thought completely through, but the one thing I can't get away is that Jesus Christ, He really is that watertight person who when He said, love your neighbor's, he loved his neighbors. And when he said, love your enemies, loved his enemies. And when he said, treat people as you would want them to treat you, really treated people as if he, the same way he wanted to be treated. And when he said, be generous, he was generous to the point of giving his life. And, and, and when he said, be forgiving, he was the one who, even as they were killing him, said to the Father, said to God, forgive them where they don't really know what it is they're doing. He is the one in whom there are no holes. He is complete. He is the real deal. And He offers you life. And if that describes you this morning, 
We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front that can talk to you about how that can happen to you today. Or if there are any other prayer requests or things that we could help you with, just let us know by coming down to the front or sending those prayer uh, request cards forward as we stand and we sing together. You're only son.